leftovers, or the DMV, or house cleaning, or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win! Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan! It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and this week I will be bringing you part two of my discussion with Corbin Ford on the 1984 Eastern Conference first round series between the Knicks and the Pistons, if you missed part one, we kind of went into the background of that series as well as talked about a lot of the players and coaches involved. Uh, so if you haven't checked that out, please uh, go back and, and listen to that first. Uh, but uh, this episode, we'll be getting more into the nitty-gritty of the actual games, uh, games three through five, and most specifically that classic of a game five. So uh, please enjoy. Let's move into... Game three now, and uh, this is the first game that we both watched in full. This is a game that the New York Knicks won 120-113. to uh, but, but this was a game that, to me, felt, uh, you know, it, it wasn't as close as maybe the final score indicated. It, it, it felt very much like the Knicks had control. Oh, yeah, it took a 41-point fourth quarter from the Pistons to bring that game uh, to any sort of respectability. That's honestly after a 36-point third quarter. The Knicks used advantage early. They felt they were just the more active team. Um, Energy-wise, Bernard King, again, very efficient. 70% shooting in 40 minutes to go for 46 points, 10 <laughs> rebounds, and 4 assists. And it looked just as dominant in the actual game uh, as the satellite did. Just as gaudy, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's crazy, like, the you know, when I say that he averaged over 40 points a game, it wasn't, it's not one of those where it's like he put up 60 a couple times and then a couple of 20 pieces. It's like 46, 46, 42, 36. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy, crazy consistent. Um, you know, the, the one thing I did, uh, I did like from a Detroit perspective you know, again, noticing their bench very strong. You know, you look at the likes of Vinnie Johnson. You had an older Lionel Hollins who, 
another guy that uh, you know was a veteran and experienced player. He, of course, was a starting guard for the the Portland Trailblazers when they won that '77 championship off of Bill Walton. Uh, but uh, Holland, and then of course Hollins later became a, a head coach, uh, still an assistant in the league. But yeah, you know, and and Cliff Levingston, six seven forward with with great athleticism. Uh, the 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 Pistons bench was pretty strong. It really was. And seeing those guys, knowing Cliff Levingston would get, you know, you'd see him again with the high flying Atlanta Hawks in the late '80s, and then with the Bulls in the early '90s. You're right. I wasn't even aware. I had to uh, blink twice when I was like, wait a second, is that? Lionel Hollins? I remember watching an old um, 70s uh, Portland Trailblazers game. And obviously he was starting point guard for that championship team that year. Um, and I was like, oh wow. And I looked it up and yeah, this was around the like, end of his career when he bounced around between the Clippers, the Pistons, and the Rockets uh, before ending out his NBA career. But he had time with Portland, like you said, and he had time with the uh, 76ers as well um, in the backcourt. He was another guy steady. They had a nice, steady little bench. Earl Latour, like Earl Latour. What a nickname. Uh, Landon Boy, you know, he was fresh off of a, a championship with the Philadelphia 76ers. So that was kind of cool, you know, to see them be brought along after that. Um, it, was, it was something else. And it was funny back then. I'd like to say just something about Earl 12. Just a random note. I guess back signing as a free agent, you know, uh, as compensation, the other team got, or in this case, the 76ers got an 89 second round pick. And 1990 second round pick, both of the players of little note, uh, Tony Mack and uh, Stefano Rosconi, if anyone's really interested. But the conversation <laughs> was hilarious for me. These are, these are the kind of, these are the kind of deep, uh, deep cuts <laughs> info that uh, I bring you on the pod for. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> and I just thought it was so funny that I remember the tour free agency. But I'm still going, how do you get from there? I guess, you know, they sign them, bring some rebound, defensive uh, savvy or whatever. And it's like, oh, by the way, give you the second round pick his compensation. I thought it was a hilarious little footnote. But like you said, they had a sneaky, um, well, not even a sneaky good bench. They had a pretty decent bench. Um, and they were there. They brought different uh, positions of need for this Pistons team that needed its spots, except size, really, in my opinion. Yeah, and, you know, the twirl. We'll, we'll call Earl the twirl, Kiriton just the twirl for the rest of the episode. <laughs> Uh, Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> he, uh, he, uh, he, uh, at a lot of times was was arguably their best option on King. You know, obviously there there weren't any good options, but at times he even did a did an okay job with that. But uh, another thing about the Pistons game, you know, uh, talking a little bit more, we didn't we didn't discuss much about Isaiah, but uh, you know his defense was really impressive, even though the Pistons as a team weren't a great defensive unit at this point. He was a great individual defender. His full-court pressure in this game was a large part why they were able to make this respectable by the end. You know, he, he not only made them take a while, even those guards, just to get it into the half court, but then, uh, you know, he did a really good job of uh, making it difficult even to make those entry passes. Yeah, his pressure was something, you're right, was totally underrated, but uh, in big games, the dude the dude made it work, came to play, you know, and that was something I thought was interesting as well. Like, he, offensively and defensively, the guy I thought was, was a little bit of a force, at least for a team that needed some fire on that side, you know? I mean, I'm honestly, personality-wise, that's another thing, brief aside, how many awkward high-fives did we see? Awkward two-handed high-fives that partly missed the hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you uh, you see guys get fired up now, but uh, yeah, the uh, uh, there there was quite a bit of uh, some some bloopers on the sidelines, and uh, 
Yeah, just some, some funny shenanigans going on. Yeah, a lot of it, it almost felt like they were editing out any bad words because all you could hear was, yeah, yeah, but that's honestly what they were saying. Like, you know, now you're like, that's that stuff, whatever, but they're like, yeah, yeah, and I was like, this is hilarious. Like, I'm loving the innocent pep celebrations from these guys. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, just whooping off of a, of a great fast break layup. And I'm like, oh, wow. I remember one time I was falling asleep watching um, one of the games, and I was like, oh, this must be like a deciding finish for the game. And I moved my cursor over, and it was like midway through the second quarter. I was like, wow, we were getting hyped very early for this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So any more, any other stray thoughts about Game 3 before we move to Game 4? Um, game 3, not really. I think you already mentioned it, just the, having the Knicks, or um, how the Pistons had only, could only hope to match up with the Knicks on, uh, on, on guarding Bernard King and the futility of that. But also, sneaky good Kelly uh, game with uh, 40 points. Yeah, 15 of 25 from the field and 10 of 11 from the line. Again, really good. You know, I have no doubt, uh, you know, if he played in today's game, he could be a 40%, you know, three-point shooter. He's got that kind of touch. Really good standstill guy. Um, and, uh, yeah, so he had, a, he had a really solid game and, again, a really good offensive series as a whole. But, uh, yeah, moving on to game four, of course, this is the, the, uh, another game in New York. And uh, this was a game that the Pistons had to win down 2-1 in the series on the road. These are the kind of games that, uh, you know, in a seven-game series, I think game four is when things really start to get serious. Um, so in this one, it's, it's really uh, in a five game series that much more, that much more important because their season was on the line and Detroit came away with a 119-112 victory. And that's despite getting off to a really horrid start. They were down 8 nothing to begin the game. Yeah, I mean, it was bad. They couldn't find anything. Uh, it was careless turnovers at times. Um, uh, as a team, just 15. Uh, uh, Isaiah Thomas had 5. Didn't, didn't really, I mean, he shot actually pretty decent this game. But you're right, it was just sluggish and no offense continuity. Uh, and then it was like they woke up. And if you look, I mean, better. If I field goal percentage, uh, they actually had less turnovers in the Knicks. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, the Knicks at, what, 19? So not by much, but they took over, and it was really by a balanced effort in this one because uh, Chibuka had 21, I- Isaiah Thomas at 22, Lambeer at 18, John Long at 12, Vinny Johnson off the bench in just under 30 minutes at 15, uh, Earl uh, the Troy at 12, and then Cliff Levingston uh, with a, a very uh, energy-filled 15 minutes had 11 points. So you already had six guys in double digits, or my fault, seven guys in double digits for the Pistons to kind of spread that scoring load around. Um, no guy shot more than 18 uh, attempts. You know, 18, 15, 10, 10, 15, 11. It was really solid. And then uh, Cliff was 4-4, 350 for the line. That's how he got all his points. And that really was able to withstand not only another great Bernard King game, which, by the way, as we already mentioned several times, that was every game this series. Um, <laughs> he shot 41 points on... He made 41 points on 60% from the field again. But also, Bill Cartwright came through heavy with uh, 24 and 11. So a nice big double-double, and 6-6 six, six from the line. And, I, and that was pretty solid. Fortunately, I think the backcourt for the Knicks wasn't super great. Um, Red Williams and John didn't have a really good uh, play, a really good series for the Knicks that round. But I really think that the Pistons' balanced scoring effort and just enough defense will really kind of held long to this win um, down the stretch against the New York. Yeah, and, and speaking of the, 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 the big uh, thing I have on my notes for Game 4 was this was just the, the best Isaiah Thomas game of the series, in my mind. Uh, you mentioned his 22 points. He had 16 assists, 
and uh, his uh, seven rebounds as well. So a, a brilliant all-around performance. His defensive pressure, again, really made things difficult for the Knicks and, uh, you know, made it difficult for them to throw the ball in the post on occasion. He, you know, is so great as soon as that ball handler picks up the dribble, he starts to kind of, uh, he gets in a defensive stance and starts kind of uh, shifting his weight. And, you know, he can very quickly jump back and steal that post-entry pass or, you know, challenge that shot if the guard decides to shoot. But he did a really good job of of playing both of those and, and keeping the, the guard off balance. Um, but then, you know, with the Knicks' full-court pressure, Isaiah Thomas just showcased his brilliant dribbling ability, uh, you know, breaking down that defense and, and making a lot of, like, baseball-type passes, full-court passes to break the defense down and get easy shots for his teammates. Just a brilliant all-around performance from Thomas. Yeah, I think this was best game, uh, like you said. Well, not best game overall for me. I still like that game five performance, just raising up um, some clutch shots there, but just easily penetrating to the basket, getting his teammates involved, and finding that balance for Isaiah. That was huge, and you're right. Uh, like I said, balance going after, but he really was kind of a spark plug for them and a unifying force to keep that offensive attack together. So I'm right there with you. Now, uh, Lambeer also after, you know, Lambeer was in foul trouble all of game three. Uh, and, and Game 4 ended up making a pretty good impact. You mentioned the fact that he put in 18 points, had 10 rebounds, had a really good run in the third quarter, knocking down shots and, and helping the Pistons spacing, uh, but then also had a major poster dunk on Bill Cartwright going left, dunking over the top. That was one of the better dunks, and, and that quite surprised me because I don't think of Lambeer as a, as a very good athlete. No, no, I remember that tippy-toe jumper and some questionable, dubious uh, uh, fouls that weren't really clean when I remember his career, but also being a rugged rebounder, and you're right. I mean, I forgot that play until you mentioned it. That was monstrous. Yeah, so um, the the Knicks trying to come back late in the game, I, I, I wrote this note down, that New York was down six with a minute to play, and they actually, I believe it was Daryl Walker, got a steal, and then the, the the Knicks were coming back down to try to cut it to four or potentially three with a three, and uh, Kelly Tripuka makes really the game-clinching play by stealing it from uh, Sparrow, who had the basketball, and then he set up Levingston with a dunk, and that basically sealed it. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, it, it got a little bit precarious for the Pistons down the end when it looked like they had it under control. Yeah, they were, they were in danger of really coughing that game away down the stretch. And I, feel, I think from game three to five, that's kind of what it felt like. One team, you know, it was mostly nip and tuck, but one team would get what seemed like a comfortable lead, and then just like that, no, 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 it was getting chipped away, chipped away. And it always gets tight. It didn't matter how tight it was, you weren't seeing a lot of three-pointers. Yeah. So uh, let's move on to uh, the the game five, and, and this is one of the best games probably in NBA history. I mean, this was absolutely fantastic. We were talking before we started recording. We were both like, that game five, right? That was something. The, the, the biggest thing to, to start off with the storylines was that the Detroit Pistons didn't get to play on their home court because their original arena, which was the Pontiac Silverdome, was actually booked with another event that night. I actually wish I would have looked up. I didn't see what the event was, but that would have been funny to see. Um, so they actually had to play in Joe Lewis Arena where the Red Wings play. But can you imagine in today's league a, a Game 7 and a team having to uh, 
you know, go to a different court because their uh, their arena is booked. I mean, just crazy. That is insane. I mean, now with everything going on now, it's probably something I could put my head around. But you asked me like a month ago, I'd be like, no way. You know what I mean? It's it's crazy. You're right. Like, oh, the playoff game, we get it. But, you know, down to the venues. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's... Uh, uh, although it was still in Detroit, you know, the, the fact that these players are so used to the surroundings, they're used to their having their home locker room and their routines, and and all of that is thrown out the window playing at a different arena. So a lot of the advantage of playing at home, I thought, was lost, which was unfair for the Pistons. Uh, but uh, they nonetheless, the game had to be played, and it was a terrific one at that. And I also, you know, listening to Marv Albert uh, talking with Butch Beard in the pregame, was mentioning that Bernard King was suffering from the flu. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, why does Michael Jordan get all the credit for performing with the flu when this guy averaged over 40 for a series with it? That is true. You're right. It's about recency bias, which sounds funny. Some of the events happened like almost 30 years ago. But <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Like where that comes in, that was, that was a big thing. And I did not even realize it either until I heard that. And you're right. It was like, wow, the entire time he is just giving the Pistons the business. He's also <laughs> dealing with the flu. And it was crazy to think about that, but so true, right? Yeah, so to start the game, it, it uh, really was the, the Isaiah Thomas show early on. He uh, he actually had a situation where he was uh, the lone defender on a three-on-one Knicks fast break, and he actually gets a block. Uh, he, you know, a lot of what I saw in game four, he was doing similar things of breaking the press and, and, uh, making some really nice long full court passes. Uh, so Thomas doing a really, really solid job, but you know, New York was really hanging in this game because whenever they were able to keep that Pistons offense in the half court, you know, we talked about that clash of styles, that number one Pistons offense versus that number one Knicks D. But when it came to the half court, it very much felt like the Knicks' defense was winning that battle. Yeah, overall, it was just a more physical team. They knew how to get them. They were easier to get uh, the Pistons out of their spots. What I thought was interesting being that we saw such uh, big scoring performances, like I said, from Kelly and others, that they weren't able to do that just in general. But they had moments where they just shut down and said, okay, no, you're not getting this one. We're sorry. Uh, you know, and they were that physicality on that end. And not to say that the Pistons were like, a soft team were shying away from it, but there was definitely a difference, and you could definitely tell. Now, uh, this was another game, you know, again, Bernard King put up monster numbers in this one, and a- as I was watching this series, it, it I don't know if you had the same feeling, but it just felt like, you know, you, you're you watching the game, it's like, oh yeah, Bernard scored, he's scoring a decent amount here or there, and it's like, oh, he's got 24. It's like, oh, seriously? Like, that's, that's just the feeling I had. Yes, it was the most... In the flow of the game, what, he had 44 points back to the closeout game? I believe um, that's right. Yeah, 44. It was the most in the flow of the game 44 that I remember seeing. I got him, he was just making a shot. Bernard gets the ball, Bernard scores. Bernard gets the ball, he gets to the free throw line. He scores again, you know? But it wasn't like, oh, man, like, he's really heating up now. He just never turned it off. Yeah, it, uh, it was uh, another sensational performance. And, uh, you know, the, um, the Knicks hanging in the ball game on the road – and I thought they were hanging in despite getting the short end on the whistle in this one. There was a number of, uh, of pretty poor calls that I noticed. Uh, there was a couple of back-to-back possessions that really went against the Knicks. There was a play where Kelly Trapuca did that, you know, turnaround shot off the glass, 
got fouled and and uh, made the shot for a three-point play, but the replay showed he clearly changed his pivot foot. And then the following possession uh, for uh, for Detroit on offense, uh, Vinny Johnson gets on the block against Sparrow. He does a little turnaround. Sparrow strips him clean and is called for the foul. Um, so, you know, there were a couple of plays there that were getting the Pistons to the foul line. And then there was even a, a Marvin Webster play where it looked like he blocked Lambeer on consecutive shot attempts and then was called for a goaltend. And, and on the replay, it looked clean. Yeah, I was about to say, you're right. They had uh, 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 several different ones, like, not consecutive, but it came up that just were egregious calls even then. And I don't know if some of that was the two refs or whatever the case may be. Obviously, the use of replay or lack thereof in certain spots. Um, maybe the rest were blind. The league was rigged. I mean, we can, <laughs> I'm playing. We can have so many different like thoughts on it. But you're right. Like the, those three calls you mentioned, and there was a few even just in general being knocked out on contact and stuff that wasn't called like play through that I thought were just well, I already said egregious. You know that you should have made the call on. So that was definitely interesting. Um, one thing I didn't notice as well. We were just talking about guys who didn't get hot who were just always on. Isaiah Thomas already mentioned several times was not that type of player, but this game he most definitely was. Um, you already said by him pushing the break and beating the press. Um, and this is also the game I remember where Bernard had a nice and one and uh, had to reload, like like readjust his fingers. Just shouting out to that one. But yeah, Isaiah, yeah, it was that was rough. But Isaiah was getting all sorts of whirling moves in the lane. You know, fadeaways, step backs. Um, I remember one time he took Sparrow, basically turned him around with a basic like like crossover dribble like you change direction like a lot of guards did back in the day where you'd be back to someone and you switch hands and go the other direction but Isaiah Thompson is so fast in doing that and so shifty in his motion he was burying the Knicks again and again with jump shots from 20 feet out and then when he wasn't doing that he was able to use the threat of that which was weird um the threat of a 20 footer to kind of get to the basket with his ball handling yeah that uh, that play that you mentioned uh, King hurt his finger it was uh, you know, there was a lot of talk throughout the series that, you know, he's not shooting with his left hand because of that injury. And then on that play, the one time he does shoot with his left, he, he does a little spinning layup, and Lambeer pins his fingers, uh, his left hand fingers up against the glass. And I, I was like, oh, that had to hurt. But, yeah, uh, I was just thinking about that insane, the amount of, you're right, just injuries and stuff back then. But imagine playing on that, having to adjust your entire shot profile, still... I mean, not shot profile, but just shot. The way you take that shot still puts up great numbers on great efficiency. And then, oh, let me go normal. Boom. Forget about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, And, you know, I mentioned those those couple of shot blocks uh, by Marvin Webster that were called a goaltend. I mean, he really impressed me. He was another guy I wasn't that familiar with, but he played major minutes in this game five, was on the floor, and did a, a really good job. I think his – I've got the advanced numbers here for the Knicks – so for the game for Marvin Webster in his 24 minutes, the Knicks had an offensive rating of 208 and a defensive rating of 102. So, you know, you talk about the Knicks winning this game in overtime. A lot of that came down to Marvin Webster and, you know, his nickname, the Eraser. I think that was earned because that guy was a heck of a shot blocker. Yeah, he was very, very solid. I mean, you can't. Yeah, especially at this point when he was age 31, if I remember it, no, 29. I'm trying to remember what, um, because I know he played most of his career already, um, growing up, um, not just with, uh, the ABA, um, but no, with the Denver Nuggets early, um, in the ABA, he had, he had some moments there, and then he kind of came and, uh, played a year in Seattle, I think that was the year that Seattle won the title, no, they lost that to the 
So he's been around already, and yet this is age 31 with the Knicks. And then what's funny is he would act, well, not funny at all. Um, he actually would miss the next two years uh, due to illness, hepatitis, and then would come back and play spot minutes in 15 games with the Milwaukee Bucks at age 34. But yeah, his blocks, his defensive um, tenacity was crazy. I mean, for his career, he averaged a block and a half, but um, in, in that 84 season, you know, he was still averaging uh, under a block and a half, and he almost had two blocks a game um, back in 1979 with the Knicks. So that was his game. He would clean the glass, he would block some shots, he would finish around the rim. Wasn't He had two great years in double-digit scoring, but aside from that, you knew exactly what you were getting from him. And that was on the defensive end of the floor, and it was uh, it was definitely something else. <laughs> yeah, Hubie Brown even went with uh, some lineups with Bill Cartwright and Webster together, which he hadn't done in the first four games of the series. But, uh, you know, the Knicks just kept hanging around in the game. They hit shots at the end of the first and second quarter to, you know, give them a little bit of a boost. Um, and, you know, the the other thing, you know, looking at Detroit a little bit, Kelly Tribuca had another uh, a really solid performance, making big plays for for the Pistons. Tribuca ended with, uh, you know, 23 points. And the, the other thing that I noticed the Pistons did in this game that they hadn't previously is they started attacking King on the defensive end of the floor, and that ended up getting Bernard in foul trouble in the third quarter. Yeah, that was smart. That was one kind of strategy that was working, you know, to the advantage of, of the Pistons. Like, okay, let's just attack this guy. Not the best of the defenders already having some issues. Let's go at him with our guy and see what we can make happen. And you're right, that was a very uh, strategic move. Not that they weren't strategic for their time in general, but um, a good ploy, at least by the Pistons, to get one of the Knicks and really the only weapon that was consistently giving them problems and get them out of the game, even if it was just for a relatively shorter period of time. Yeah, so King... Leaving the game with four fouls in the third, Isaiah Thomas also, you know, after not really being in foul trouble for much of the series, got into to foul trouble in the third as well. So both the team star players were out for most of the third. And Bill Cartwright, we mentioned this a little earlier, you know, stepping up being that number two option, the go-to guy when, when King isn't getting the ball. And he had a huge second half to keep the Knicks afloat. Yeah, that would be right. That was another solid one that during that time we mentioned it before the impact he had, but keeping them afloat and doing moments when you didn't have that to keep the Knicks to kind of have another source of offense there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mentioned a couple of foul or a couple of calls that went against the Knicks, and there's another one you mentioned egregious. This to me was arguably it's it's one of the worst calls I've ever seen. The, oh wow. The Knicks are up six with three minutes and twenty seconds remaining. So, pretty crucial time in the game. Bernard King dives on the floor after a loose ball. You know, gets it, but bobbles it a little bit. He's not, uh, you know, he's not standing up. He's not getting up at all. He's not sliding anymore. He's stationary at this point. He finally collects it and passes it to a teammate. And his teammate, Ray Williams... Or, or excuse me, I, I, it may have been Williams, or it was either Williams or Sparrow, was going to go in for an uncontested layup. The referee comes in right as he's passing the ball and calls Bernard King for a travel. And I'm thinking, like, how on earth is that a travel call? Apparently then the ref went over to the scorer's table to explain the call, and, and frankly, this was one of the times where I wish I could have heard this explanation because there was no explanation in my mind that would have satisfied me with that call. No, I remember, now that you mentioned, I do remember that, and it was, yeah, that to me, 
I wasn't stunned as much. I don't know why. I just I guess at that point I was giving them uh, um, the benefit of the doubt. There you go. That's the word. It's been a rough day. Anyways, <laughs> for that, I was giving them the benefit of the doubt. I'm like, you know what? They've, made, they've missed some bad calls already. This isn't any more shock to me, but it was bad because you're right. He had not established or even attempted any further motion. And there was a slight delay in between that action actually happening and the call actually being called. And, yeah, it was a lot of that where I felt like the rest played, I don't want to say fast and loose with the rules, but just gave themselves a little more um, leeway or like they're rough sometimes. But it's like, calm down. Like, I get it, but I don't get that at all. And that play in particular was confusing because it's like, okay, that, that does, it's not, we're not at 2002 Western Conference Finals level of um, officiating insanity, but what are we doing? Right. And, you know, again, to, to compare the the way referees call the game today, you know, one of the last games I saw, and you probably saw this play as well, that the Lakers were playing, I believe it was against the Clippers, LeBron dove on the floor at one point and then just stood up with the basketball. Uh, and, it was all, like, it was all good. And then, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, the, the idea that just the act of diving on the floor and getting the ball is a travel is just insane to me. Ridiculous. But, uh, yeah. but uh yeah, so, and, you know, you, you talk about the swing of that. You know, the Knicks, again, are up six with 320 to go. If that call isn't made, they get the easy layup in transition. They're up eight with about three minutes left. That might be game over. Uh, instead, I believe the Pistons got down and, and, and got a bucket or got fouled and, and drew the game to four. So it was a four-point swing and really kept the Pistons alive. Uh, but, you know, another guy that... Given that you know King was dealing with the finger issues and also the foul trouble, I thought Ray Williams stepped up and played pretty well in this one, making some big plays and just being aggressive. You know, it, at, in a in a decisive game, a lot of times it isn't it isn't about being super efficient. It's just about creating some inefficient offense. And he was at times, you know, just being aggressive, getting into the paint and and dishing it to the bigs for some easy hoops. You're right about that. I'm glad you said that it's not about being efficient because that is one thing that Ray Williams was not um, in that one. Uh, but he did come through. He was 31% from the field that game, 7-22, to 22, but he was relentless. Nine rebounds, 12 assists, almost had a triple-double with a 17 points. Uh, did not foul out, but was, was really solid just in his play overall. And you're right, that was a game where they really needed someone to step up from the backcourt uh, for the Knicks uh, when the front court had really been doing damage all series. And... We have to also remember, Roy Spout did not bring you much. Uh, he was 1 of 11 from the field that game. Uh, he did have 10 assists, which is great. Five steals defensively was still there, but offensively working a lot there. Trent Tucker didn't give you anything. Um, Daryl Walker didn't give you much. So you really needed someone aside from Car- um, King and Cartwright to do something, and you mentioned it. It was a shot in the arm for the Knicks that was desperately needed with Ray Williams there. And for that series, I mean, what? I mean, for, for that series, that playoff, um, in general, the playoff run for them was 11 and 8. It was solid floor, floor play. It wasn't really anything special, but it was just what the Knicks needed. Something to get the ball, get them in their offense, and then at times step up and do something, and it's just what he's able to do. Yeah, so again, the the Knicks, again, despite that, that bad call, they, they kept uh, keeping the lead around 6 to, to 8 points, even with just like a couple minutes left. But this is really where... You know, you mentioned this was your favorite uh, or what you thought was Isaiah Thomas's best game. And in part, you know, I, I definitely think this stretch of about seven minutes is the best stretch of the series for him. But he's just insanely clutch. He started to make every play. And, you know, he seems like he wants the ball in those moments. And his uh, jump shot just seems a lot more confident. 
when when the game is on the line. But he started making plays, getting three point plays, and and the Knicks kept fouling him. And actually, their their starting backcourt fouled out on uh, on consecutive possessions, fouling Thomas, and and you could see Hubie Brown just screaming on the sideline like, guys, we're winning here. We don't need to keep fouling him if we concede a two. That's okay. Yeah, that's true, and you're right. Like down the stretch, they could not stop him. It, it was not something that they were able to do. And it was that electric moment where for him, everything was really going in, anyways. But especially in that point where, yeah, there was it was it was jump shots, penetration. You know, he had the the two clutch threes. He was really the reason why I went to overtime. You know, in general, but um, he was playing. This was a game where everything came together for him uh, offensively in a way that I think the Pistons were really looking for. And aggressively, at least he shot the, easily, I want to say, the most shots that he attempted in the game that series. Um, but was also pretty efficient for him. Uh, 52%, 13-25, 2 out of 3 from 3, with the 12 assists. Didn't get to get the rebounds, but he was the offensive fulcrum for the Pistons, and they needed it when Kelly Puka went 8-23. And then Bill Ambeer, you know, he got 14 points, and John Long as well. And you had a good game from a... Vinny Johnson, if not the most efficient, but you need a guy to step up that way, and that's exactly what uh, Isaiah IT did. Uh, I can't say IT with Isaiah Thomas currently in and about the NBA, but you get what I mean. Um, it was some very clutch shots, and it was moments where I went, okay, he is on fire. You know, he's isolating on the wing. He was taking guards up from the top, and the dribbling moves he did were not su- super sophisticated to get his shot. A lot of shifting, a lot of changing direction, a lot of moving back and forth, and then before you know it, he was rising over the top and burying that jumper. And it, it was one of those games where, you know, we talked about his perimeter jumper earlier being kind of off and on, but I want to say tonight or that night, more or less, it was on. Yep, you're you're absolutely right. And, you know, the you mentioned kind of a, a theme of this whole series was teams seemingly having the game under control and then, uh, you know, kind of coughing the ball up on numerous occasions and letting the other team back into it. And again, it looked like the Knicks had this one uh, under wraps, but then again, their their backcourt fouls out, uh, you know, giving Thomas some three-point opportunities. And then uh, Lewis Orr steps onto the floor, and uh, they're doing a full-court pressure, and he steps out of bounds, which gives the, the Pistons the basketball, and, and they get a bucket to cut it to just one. And, and this is where... The, the, the legend of Bernard King continues because the, the Knicks, you know, reeling. Their season is slipping from their fingertips. They're up one, and uh, he gets the ball in isolation. He basically just says, everyone get the hell out of my way. He's on the left side, takes a couple dribbles to his left, and pulls up from about 14 feet and hits a very clutch and difficult shot and uh, put them up three with 26 seconds remaining. So, uh, you know, King, again, not only the all-around play and the scoring ability throughout the series, but when it mattered as well. Exactly, yeah, and that clutch play, like you said, one thing to be able to do it just throughout the game, another one is like, no, I can turn this on whenever, and that that alpha dog, I got the ball, let me create the best shot for myself and put this game on ice, that really, let me put the series on ice, that really did the trick, you know? Yeah, uh, so the Pistons then down three. I, I feel like we need to do kind of a play-by-play of these closing oh, yeah, moments no, because right. sure, it is uh, it was a fascinating conclusion to the game. So the Pistons down three. They're, they call a timeout. They advance the basketball. They're inbounding it. Isaiah goes to about half court to try to get it, but he's getting denied by Tucker. 
and uh, Lambeer comes up and gets the pass, and then he finds Thomas on a back cut, and Thomas, eluding Tucker, able to pull up from three from straight away, and he knocks it down. Um, and, and you mentioned the, the lack of threes of this series. The Pistons made, what, like five threes, and, and this was one of them. Uh, a, a huge shot that, that tied the game. And then, you know, the Knicks, with the, with the possession then, turn it over on the ensuing inbound. But the, the interesting thing was New York had called time to advance the basketball, and John Long, a, another questionable call, the defender of the inbounder, was stepping over the line and maybe even deflected it. There wasn't a good enough replay to know if he for sure touched the, the inbounds pass but he was clearly jumping and his feet were over the line invading the space of the inbounder, something the ref should have seen. Yeah, that's another one where it's like, okay, where are they positioned? It was an obvious call to anyone who saw it, and even if you didn't, I mean, just hearing about it, it was pretty clear. But yeah, another dubious call in a, in a decided game five, but you hate to see, but this series, you already mentioned this several times, had more than a few of them, unfortunately. Yeah, um, but it did add to the, the drama of the closing moments and, uh, of this game. And so Isaiah, you mentioned super hot, uh, just basically starts to dribble out the clock because the Pistons can, can take the, the final shot. And he, you know, the Knicks, though, have Daryl Walker, who we've already mentioned, had the seven steals in game one, a really solid defensive player, albeit I thought he was more of an offensive liability throughout the series, but terrific defensively. Uh, Thomas runs down the clock, drives left, and Walker, with a great steal, gets it from him. And, uh, you know, Thomas not able to even get the shot up towards the hoop. Then Walker finds Tucker running down the key. He catches the ball with about two seconds left right at about the three-point line. And instead of just taking one dribble and pulling up from 15 feet, which he could have done and, and gotten the shot off in time, he tries to go all the way to the rim and uh, the, the buzzer sounds, and then he puts up the layup and gets fouled, and the referee actually signaled a foul at first, but then thought about it for a second and then said, no, the time had passed. But uh, a, a really crazy conclusion to, uh, to regulation. It really was. You're right. If he had taken that shot a little bit earlier, who knows? Sean Tucker definitely had the range, so that could have been game. We don't know. The foul just getting clobbered was ridiculous, but at the same time, I do agree with the ref, even though you have to think about it, which seemed kind of obvious to me, that the time had passed and that that shot wasn't going to go up anyway. But, you know, it was just, so, like you said, yet another uh, little note to add to the, the rich drama of that game that you mentioned. The reason I kind of got to where I got to was the way that that finished. And what a defensive play by Daryl Walker, like you mentioned. The ability to back up as Isaiah kept going, and Isaiah could have done the exact same thing, taking the page out of the Trent Tucker book, and just put up for 15, but he kept trying to penetrate more and more. And Walker was able to retreat while also stabbing out his hand, knocking the ball away from Isaiah before he went up for the shot. It was just a really good defensive play um, in one of the more clutch moments of the game with the red-hot Isaiah with the ball. Yeah, and, and a lot of times you'll see defenders in those situations being a little more passive, but I do think aggressiveness can benefit you a lot in those situations, and, and Walker with those quick hands absolutely made a, a terrific play. So overtime comes, and uh, we've got a little bit of a back and forth, but the Knicks take a bit of a lead, and uh, one of the, the highlight plays of that overtime, uh, Bernard King with a huge, monstrous two-handed putback slam. Yeah, that was a big one, too. And he had a couple dunks that were just amazing. But just coming over the top and, and finishing with a resounding flush, 
that was that was uh, I don't want to say like another uh, like finishing move of the game, but it was just another dagger or attempted dagger that Bernard was able to put on the Pistons over and over. And that one especially was one flush on that side. Um, he did. And I think it was another game during. Uh, no, it might have been the same game. No, I think it was uh, another one, maybe game four, where it was just like a, a breakaway flush that was just fire. Yeah, he uh, he was an impressive athlete, even for you know. Uh, 1984 standards, a very, very good athlete. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, the again, it's just like regulation. It seemed like the Knicks, you know, had this under control, but given that they were without their starting backcourt, the, the Pistons began to pressure again, and the Knicks started turning it over, and Isaiah Thomas just did not want to give up. He put five straight up on a three and also had a left-handed scoop shot that was really impressive. Uh, you know, Thomas just was absolutely sensational and continued to keep the Pistons in the game. Oh, yeah. I think he also understood, hey, listen, this is my money time right now. He was the guy best equipped to get some shots, and he was had so much heart to do it, too. But it helps when the shots are actually going down as well, obviously. But again and again, they need the big shot, Isaiah bailed him out. Need another big shot, Isaiah bailed him out. Shooting the three ball. It wasn't like the three was a was, was a wide open three. There's a little bit of a level of difficulty there. You know, on both of those they took, which just one was just how deep he was, surprisingly so for back then, and another was just just being the guy and the guy having to contest from behind. But um, yeah, Isaiah had great touch on some shots down the stretch, and it, it was good. It was really good. Yeah, the the big issue and why New York was able to eventually pull away and 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 get the. 127-123 win was, you know, even after that five straight by Thomas, he's still, you know, being the unselfish player that he is. He wanted to keep his teammates involved. He tried to get Tribuca going, and Tribuca, after having a pretty good first four quarters, really struggled in that overtime period, couldn't get anything to fall, um, and, and, and that kind of ended up being the demise of the Pistons. They just couldn't score enough in that overtime session, and, you know, again, the Knicks getting enough from the likes of, of Cartwright and, and King in overtime to, to pull away and, and get the win and of the game and the series. Yeah, it came down to that again, just not only having the size, but also being able to go to their captain, Bernard, who even with foul trouble, I mean, like you said, when he missed eight minutes in that third period and having the flu, that was the fourth straight 40-point game, uh, record for a five-game series amount of points he had. And, yeah, I mean, you had 29 from Bill Cartwright, 23 of those in the second half. Um, you already mentioned Marvin Webster, but those 10 points and three block shots helped. And it was a team effort in the end, but you obviously knew who would rally behind, you know? And it was uh, it was something else. It was it was a great conclusion to a really interesting series, you know? I don't even say it was, it was a classic series because of the, I would say primarily because of that shootout in this in that in that past game between Bernard and Isaiah. And really the funny thing about it is a shootout because Bernard kept doing what Bernard was doing all series. It was just now he had somebody in Isaiah Thomas who could finally at least answer that, you know, whether the shot was going down or whatever the reason for a spell. So that was good. But, um, yeah, that, that right there was the way the series ended. Those first couple of games, I think, is the reason they're hard to find, you know? Um, yeah. And then, you know, three through five were okay, but game five was that game for certain. And, and just what a great closeout to an interesting series. Absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah, you mentioned it, the – the duel in Game 5, I think that's why that's considered a classic. But, yeah, I, I just really did enjoy the, the X's and O's and the, the clashing of styles. I think that's what makes the, the playoffs so fun. You know, going back even this past decade, those uh, 
those grit and grind Grizzlies teams facing the Warriors or the Thunder, you know, the those Grizzlies teams were some of my favorite, uh, you know, were participated in some of my favorite series to watch just because, yeah, it's fun to see two teams that, you know, win in completely different ways. And that's just what it was. And each level of success, they knew what it was. They stuck to it. You know, they say styles make fights. And they had that stylistic clash between both teams, and their identity was what it was, and it worked. It, it pushed through to the maximum five games. Um, even though you saw some teams which got clear advantages over the other, it didn't matter how it worked itself out, and, and you nailed it. It was just a very interesting um, look, not only into the times of those teams, but just how they played, the personnel which they had, the coaching. A really cool, holistic view. I really enjoyed this. It was cool. Well, Corbin, was there was there anything uh, else about the series that you wanted to bring up before we uh, wrap this up? Uh, you know what? Bring back the '80s NBA intros, just in general. Uh, whether it's <laughs> NBA, CBS, or otherwise, I, I'd love to see it. Um, it's really kind of cool. They they somehow were able to build the story or the drama of the actual like match without letting it over um, overwhelm the actual gameplay and the telestrate and all of that. I, I really loved that old school format. And yeah, they had their opinionated broadcasts as much as we have now, but they had more focus on replaying of different moves and um, how changes after timeouts and coaches are adjusting on the fly in real time. And I, I really enjoyed that. I, I will always prefer the, uh, you know, will always die on the NBA on NBC theme hill. Uh, that. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, but yes, I, I completely agree. It's uh, it, it was it did feel more like an event uh, in this in this time period. But Corbin, this was this was a heck of a lot of fun. I know you you already discussed with me that uh, you would be interested in doing some more of these in the future. I hope uh, your mind hasn't been changed after this discussion. No, not at all. If anything, only further enhancement. I'm very excited for the possibility that that would be awesome. Anything to dig into some old games during this time layoff and really do a deep dive as students of it like let's go (laughs) yeah the nba has a rich history with a lot of great players and series so yeah we've got a lot to choose from but corbin thanks so much again this was this was a heck of a lot of fun really appreciate it man thanks for having me thanks so much for listening to duncan dynasty Uh, if you'd like to support the show you can uh, you can subscribe to the program on itunes if you can leave a, uh, a rating and review, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Uh, the show is also now on Spotify. Uh, if you can uh, give the show a follow, again, a rating on there, uh, that uh, that really helps a lot. If uh, if you've got any uh, questions or comments or, uh, or ideas for, uh, for future episodes, uh, you can contact me uh, on Twitter at Garrett Bouguet, and also uh, my email is g-bouguet at onu.edu so uh, feel free to uh, to uh, give me any of your uh, ideas I, I love to hear from uh, from the people listening to the program and uh, enjoy the next week of the NBA calendar and uh, have a great rest of your day leftovers or the DMV or house cleaning or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. 
But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of Ookla speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.